Well, this morning we uh, continue on in this short series leading into Christmas, focusing on the person of Jesus as we ask the question, what child is this, this child in the manger? And I want to draw our attention today particularly to a couple of verses in John's Gospel. They're found in John chapter 20, verses 30, uh, 30 and 31. So as you uh, turn to that, allow me to, uh, to lead us in just a short prayer. Gracious God, as we come to your word now, we pray that uh, you might indeed uh, just enlighten our hearts uh, fresh this morning with uh, the knowledge of our Saviour Jesus. As we focus this morning our, our hearts and thoughts and attention upon you, Lord, may you speak to us. May we have ears that are ready to hear, hearts that are ready to receive the word of God today, so that that word may indeed provide a wonderful harvest of righteousness in our lives for the glory of Jesus. Amen. These verses in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 say this. Um, I'll just put it up on the uh, screen for you. It doesn't seem to be working there, guys. So if you can put that up for me, that'd be great. It says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this particular book, or John's God, the, the Gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, the Apostle John here has a twofold purpose in writing his gospel, a twofold purpose in mind when it came to him writing down his eyewitness account of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And there was this, that people would believe certain truths about Jesus, that he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. And that by believing these things about Jesus, that the people believing them would, would gain a great benefit, that is, have life or have salvation, eternal life, in the name of Jesus. In his gospel, John uh, seeks to address the most significant, I think one of the most significant and important questions that every person who has ever been born must uh, answer for themselves, the question of who is Jesus. And as we come to celebrate Christmas again at this time of year, the time when traditionally we remember the birth of Jesus, as we gaze this morning, I guess uh, figuratively, uh, figuratively, if you like, at, the, uh, at the, the, the manger there in the nativity scene, as we gaze upon this infant Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, what child is this? Who is Jesus to us? Because John wants us all to be very clear about who Jesus really is. He says that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Now, you may uh, um, ordinarily sort of have church is a very, very familiar thing to you, and you know, you know automatically that, uh, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Christ, is a title of Jesus. It's not Jesus' surname, as some people may, may think in our world today, but it's indeed a title of Jesus. And it's essentially a title that, that designates Jesus as God's special anointed king or Messiah. And Pastor Mark's going to speak a bit more on that next week as we come to look at Jesus as our ruler. But our focus today is on John's other designation of Jesus as the Son of God. And so in claiming that Jesus is the Son of God, John is actually saying that Jesus himself is God. 
It's just this very claim that Jesus is God that separates Jesus from every other religious leader who has ever lived. And it separates Christianity from every other religion that is around in our world today or that has ever have been. This claim that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. It's interesting that John's gospel doesn't actually start, it doesn't have an account uh, at the beginning of the birth of Jesus. Instead, John emphasizes the pre-existence of Jesus as the divine logos or the word of God. We see that in John's gospel, chapter 1, and I'll put the Bible verses up on the screen behind me so you don't have to be flipping all the time through the Bible. We're going to be going through a lot of verses this morning. But in John's gospel, chapter 1, we read this about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the word. That word, word, that is, that's referring to Jesus, the, 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 uh, the pre-existent son of God before he entered into our world as the, the, uh, the person of Jesus himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then as we move down to verse 14, John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants to make crystal clear through his gospel, and he goes on to make crystal clear that this indeed, this, this word made flesh is Jesus. Uh, in his gospel, John points to a number of signs for, which, for those which, with eyes of faith will, uh, to see these signs can verify that Jesus' deity or his, his godness, if you like, his glory and these seven signs revolve around particular actions and miracles performed by Jesus, which point to him as being God in the flesh. And the first one is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, where Jesus attends a wedding and he turns the water at this wedding into wine. The, you know, the guests have run out of wine. It's a, it's a terrible thing for the host to run out of wine. And that day it was a, a really um, uh, incredibly bad mark on them in the light of their, uh, their society, their community. And so Jesus... Uh, in his grace, changes this water into wine, and he uses the water that is in the uh, that, that's generally used for the the Jewish rite of purification, the the, the 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 rite of being clean. And Jesus is basically saying that he is superseding now this this Jewish ritual, if you like, and he's bringing in the abundant blessings of his new kingdom. Uh, so we see the turning of the water into wine. Uh, the next one, we see Jesus in the cleansing of the temple. And we see in that that Jesus refers to uh, you know, the temple as his father's house. And Jesus is very much declaring himself to be the son of God there. The third one is the healing of the official son in John 4, verses 46 to 54. Uh, the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath in John 5, verses 1 to 15. We see here the incredible power, the, the miraculous power of Jesus as the Son of God being able to bring about healing and restoration for this particular, these particular people, the official son and the, and the lame man. And in John chapter 9, we'll see it in the healing of the blind man. Uh, but before that, Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John 6, 
the healing of the blind man in John 9, and finally the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. John uses these seven signs very much to point out that, uh, that is these, these very things point to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. And, uh, and the reason he's writing his gospel is to uh, convince people of that very fact. You know, as we look to the, uh, perhaps the, the, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, we find these attestations, it's a one to get your tongue around, isn't it? These attestations to Jesus as the Son of God and uh, in, in different ways as well. We see it in the testimony of the angel and Mia read this to us just a minute ago in Luke 1.35. And the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In Jesus' earthly, beginning of his earthly ministry, we see the testimony of God the Father at Jesus' baptism. As Jesus comes out of the water, the dove of the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and the voice from the clouds, the voice of God himself says, Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5, we see, we hear the very same words of God spoken from heaven about Jesus as his son. We see it in the, in the mouths of the disciples. In Peter, in Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16, Jesus asks his disciples, he's got them gathered around him, and he says, who is it that people say I am? And his disciples say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life, because at this stage John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. Some say that, uh, you know, that Jesus is a, uh, is, a, is, a, is a great prophet. But Jesus actually really hones in on the disciples and he says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter, you know, blurts out, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because man did not reveal this to you, but my Father revealed it to you. It was very much a spiritual reality that God had impressed upon Peter. As Peter had seen all that Jesus had done and heard the teachings of Jesus, he'd become convinced in his heart that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. The Gospel writer Mark, in Mark 1, verse 1, begins his Gospel with these words. He says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Even those who were opposed to Jesus testified to the fact that he is the Son of God. We see that Satan, in Jesus' temp uh, being tempted in the wilderness after his baptism, Satan refers to him as the Son of God several times in Matthew 4. And he says, you know, if you are the Son of God, then you know, command God to do this or command his angels to do that. And, and uh, Jesus responds that you know, he's not going to put God to the test in those ways. And God, Jesus continues re to, re to respond to the devil. But the devil very much is, is saying, not if you are the son, but it's kind of like he's sort of saying, seeing that you are the son of God, then you should be able to do this. Even Satan was clear of it. And of course, we see the demons in themselves and, uh, as Jesus conducted his earthly ministry, as he, uh, as he went, went among the villages, as he healed people, as he, uh, as he cast out demons from people's lives, the demons themselves claimed that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And there, right at the very end of Jesus' earthly life, as he, had part, as he had died there on the cross, the Roman centurion... This uh, person who uh, was very much in charge, you know, overseeing the, uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Roman centurion at Jesus' crucifixion himself was able to testify that surely this was 
the Son of God. And we see that in Matthew 27 and, uh, and Luke 4. Oh, no, we don't. Matthew, uh, Mark 15, verses 39 there. All through the Gospels, we see this, this incredible picture being built up about Jesus as the Son of God. And it goes even further into the New Testament letters. Paul, writing the letter to the Romans, says in Romans verses 1 to 4, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. John, when he writes the, uh, the letters uh, in the, uh, towards the end of our, uh, our New Testament, he says this in 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And finally, the writer of Hebrews in 4.14 says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Of course, folks, this is just a smattering of the verses in Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament, that refer to Jesus being the Son of God, God himself in the flesh. So as we come this Christmas to remember this, this baby born in a manger, we need to remember that this baby is no ordinary baby, that he is indeed God who has come to visit us, to reveal himself to us. It's absolutely clear that the witness of the New Testament points without a, without a doubt to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, having laid all that out before you, and I know we've kind of skipped through a, a number of verses there, I want to just uh, go through just a few things of why, you know, or, or the, the, I guess the significance, if you like, or the reality that this uh, should have, the, 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 how this should impact us in our lives. And it should do so in several ways. And the, the first is this, that as the unique Son of God, Jesus is the only one, the only one who is able to properly reveal God and his ways to us. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Referring to Jesus. If you go back again to John 1, remember the word was with God and the word was God. In John 14, verses 8 to 9, right at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see uh, um, these disciples, he's been telling his disciples that he's going to be going, he's going to be leaving them. He's going to be going, returning back to the Father. And Philip says to him, one of the disciples says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14, verses 8 to 9. In Matthew 11 and verse 27, Jesus says, All, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Again, in Colossians 1, 13 to 15, it says, He that is the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He that is the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, what we're learning here is that if we want to know God and what God is like, then we must first look to the person of Jesus. Folks, today there are all kinds of faiths out there. There are all kinds of people saying that, you know, they know the way to, to eternal life. They know the way to, you know, to whatever they might call it. They might call it nirvana or all these sorts of things. They know all this knowledge about spiritual stuff and they all lead to the same God. And it's not true. It's not true. Only Jesus as the divine Son of God, only Jesus as God in the flesh can reveal God to us and reveal the ways of God to us. If we want to know eternal life, if we want to know the assurance of, of, of the fact that when this life is over, we will indeed be with God forever and ever and ever, we must come to Jesus Christ. We must acknowledge that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and we need to fall down before him in repentance and faith and trust in his, his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We must come before him and acknowledge him as the Son of God and no other that he is God in the flesh. As the unique Son of God, Jesus is the only one who is able to properly reveal God and his ways to us. And as the unique Son of God, Jesus is able to bring the very presence of God to us. In John 1.14, which we read just before, it says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. It's interesting, that word dwelling literally means made his home with. Jesus made his home with men. And it has allusions back into the Old Testament to the tabernacle, which we read about in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament. It was the tabernacle which, which God had commanded the Israelites to, to build so that he could come and dwell in the, in the midst of his people. We see that in Exodus 25 and verse 8. And then in Exodus 40, we are told that when the tabernacle was eventually erected, a cloud came down. The cloud, the glory of God came down and covered it and it filled the tabernacle. The glory of God filled the tabernacle and God came and dwelt there amongst his people in his majesty and in his glory. And here in Jesus, we see that Jesus has become flesh. He's come to tabernacle with us, to make his home with us, and to show us the glory of God in, him, in his person. You see, in sending Jesus to dwell with mankind, we learn an incredible truth about God, and it is this, that God desires relationship with us. 
Did you get that? That the God who created all things doesn't remain distant from us, but instead chose to, to, to des- or desire to have relationship with his creatures, with you and me. And not only that, but God has also done all that is necessary for us to experience fellowship with him in all his glory. It's interesting, in Matthew 1, 23, one of the, uh, you know, again, the birth narrative in Matthew, it says this, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus' very name means, or it points to the fact that God wants to be with his people. There's an interesting uh, fresco on the the, uh, ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Um, uh, There's painting by Michelangelo, and it depicts the creation with God and Adam. And God's head is sort of, and God's whole countenance actually is turned towards Adam. And God is sort of kind of like stretching out and his, and his index finger is pointing out, seeking to, to have connection with Adam. Some of you might know the, the, uh, the painting. And God is, is straining, if you like, in order to have this connection with Adam. And Adam, on the other hand, is pictured in this kind of reclined position with kind of like just, kind of just sticking the finger out like this, you know. It's interesting that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it appears that, that Adam is just wondering, you know, whether or not he'll have any kind of, you know, connection with God at all. And in his book, uh, a book called God is Closer Than You Think by a guy called John Ortberg, he writes this. He said, apparently one of the messages that Michelangelo wanted to convey is God's relentless determination to reach out to and to be with the ones he has created. Isn't that a beautiful picture? that God is reaching out, determined, relentless determination to reach out and have connection with us. But having come that close, God allows us just that space, like he did with Adam, for us to choose. God doesn't force himself upon us. You know, there in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden where God had placed the man, the woman, Adam and Eve, we see that even though God desired relationship and for a time Adam and Eve enjoyed that, that wonderful communion and fellowship with God, that intimate fellowship with him, they chose instead to reject God's love and his authority. And they chose instead to become their own gods, to follow their own course, to follow their own minds. And we see in their rejection of God and their sinful rebellion towards him, we see that this created then an eternal separation between God and mankind. Their sin infected the whole of creation and led to all of mankind, you and I as well included, being corrupted by sin and therefore separated from God as well. Folks, today, we ourselves, we naturally choose to be our own gods, determined to plot our own course, denying the God who created us, rebelling against him and rebelling against his ways. And we do it day after day after day. And yet God did not give up on us. 
God did not give up. But instead, he came in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into our world in pursuit of us on this mission to reconcile us to himself. And even though we rejected God, he did not reject us. But instead, he humbled himself, entered into our world to prove his love for us. And so when we look at Jesus, when we see that babe lying in a manger, we are reminded of that great love of God for you and for me. Now, one of the most frequent promises that you'll find in the Bible is this. God says to his people, I will be with you. Perhaps today you need to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded that God is with you. In whatever circumstances, in whatever trials, in whatever difficulties, in whatever pain, in whatever suffering, in whatever confusion, in whatever doubt, in whatever sin, God says, I want to be with you. I will be with you. If we ourselves will just humble ourselves before God, we can know the power of God with us in our lives. You might be fighting right now against God. You might be fighting so hard in your heart. Fighting so hard to, to maintain that control of your life. Straining with all your abilities and all your resources to try to keep your life on this, on this particular course that you have in mind. And God is saying to you today that you need to just surrender. You need to stop fighting. You need to just humble yourself and come to me and I will be with you and my peace will be with you. My grace will be with you and will be sufficient for you. We were created to be with God. And it's interesting, in the very last book of the Bible, in the penultimate chapter of that book, the book of Revelation, we read these words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What God began there at the creation in creating Adam, Adam and Eve to have that relationship with him, the ones who rejected him outright and how all of humanity is, has, has walked in rebellion and rejection against God, God's purpose has always been to bring to completion his work that he started at the beginning, to bring a, a, a mankind around his throne, to bring those who trust in Jesus Christ around his throne into his kingdom 
to know the joy and the peace and the comfort of knowing that God is indeed our God and we are his people. God wants you to be with him forever and Jesus is the evidence of that. Next, as the unique son of God, Jesus not only brings the presence of God to us, but he himself is the one who can bring us to God. Because Jesus is both fully human and fully God, he was the only one who can reconcile a holy God with sinful men. See, God's perfect standards, his divine law needed to be met. It needed to be fully obeyed. And no one, no one who has ever lived was able to do that apart from Jesus. And having met the perfect requirements of God's law, having fulfilled it completely, having been perfectly obedient to God and to his ways, Jesus then chose to offer up his perfect life, his righteousness. He, 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 he chose to offer up that to us and instead take our sin and our rebellion upon himself and bear the, punish from, the punishment for that that we deserve in dying for us in our place. It's what one theologian described as the great exchange. See, as the perfect sinless son of God, death could not keep its hold on Jesus. And he rose triumphant in victory over it, opening up the way for all who put their faith and trust in him to have their sins forgiven and to receive eternal life in his name. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1, 19 to 22, when he says, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you... Speaking about us, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that is doing stuff that goes against God and his ways, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Dwell upon those words just for a moment. Jesus died in order to present you a fallen, sinful, rebellious sinner. He died in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Jesus crossed the chasm which our sin created between us and God in order to bring us into the family of God. Galatians 4, 4 to 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Folks, surrendering to Jesus is the only way that we can be assured of being accepted by God. It is the only way. You cannot in any way, shape or form earn enough brownie points by all the good stuff that you do in your life. You can in no way measure up to God's perfect standards. You cannot earn God's favour. But Jesus himself came in order to, to do it for us. 
so that through putting our faith and our trust in him that we can indeed be assured of acceptance before God, adopted into his family as children. We're coming to the end. We're nearly there. As the unique son of God, Jesus not only reconciles us to God, but he also makes us partakers of all of the privileges and of the relationship that he himself shares with the Father. In Romans 8, 17, Paul writes that we who have put our faith and trust in Jesus become joint heirs with Christ. Jesus is the son of God, the natural heir of the Father, if you like. But, and his inheritance is the whole universe, all that is in existence. Hebrews 1, 2 says that the Son has been appointed heir of all things. And so being a co-heir with Christ means that we as God's adopted children will share in all the inheritance of Jesus himself. It means first and foremost that we are welcome in God's family as much as Jesus is welcome with the Father. Two to go. As the unique Son of God, Jesus makes his divine power available to us in our lives through his Holy Spirit. See, Jesus' power enables us to be strengthened in our inner being. Ephesians 3.16, you know those times where we just feel as though we just have not, we just can't do it anymore. When it comes to that point in our lives where we just feel as though we have, we've just exhausted God's patience. When it comes to those times in our lives where we feel as though, you know, our spiritual life, we just have not, just not got the energy in that anymore. Jesus, is, because he is the son of God and he dwells us through his spirit, he is able to give us his power to strengthen us in our inner being, in our spiritual being. Not only that, his power is able to help us to stand firm and endure suffering in the midst of persecution. This week I was reading an uh, a, um, email that came through from Barnabas Fund and uh, was talking about a, a group of believers in the north of Cameroon who had been attacked, their village had been attacked by the, um, the, the group Boko Haram. And the pastor had been killed and, uh, and one of the children had been killed and many of the, uh, the Christians in that particular uh, village had been killed. They'd uprooted all the crops. They'd, uh, they'd destroyed the village. They'd left the people with absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. These people had everything ripped from their grasp. They had no security, they had no peace, they had no comfort, they had no food, they had no place to live. And yet the people were able to write a song of lament and praise to God in the midst of that. If, if all of a sudden everything was to be ripped from your grasp, everything you had everything you had, your home, your family, your church, your security, your job, your, 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 all, if, if every, all that was to be completely ripped from your grasp this morning, like Job when he lost all, everything that he, that he possibly had, would you be able to say that Jesus is still sufficient for me? 
Would you still be able to compose a song of praise to God in the midst of that? As we look to Jesus and as we trust in Jesus, Jesus says that he will give us even the power to do that in our lives. His power is able to help us to stand firm and endure suffering in the midst of persecution. Surely Jesus' power is able, will enable us to be able to stand up in our own country today and actually stand in, in boldness for Jesus Christ to those around about us, hey? Yeah? Not only that, his power is able to help us to say no to temptation and sin. We see that in 2 Peter 1.3. His power is able to make us his witnesses and to be his ministers. And his power in us is immeasurable, Ephesians tells us, and is able to accomplish more than all we ask for or imagine. Because Jesus is the unique Son of God, his power is available to us in our lives today through his Holy Spirit. And lastly, as the unique Son of God then Jesus alone deserves our worship. See, Jesus is not just another religious leader. This world would have us believe that. Some would even say that he's just a myth. But it is clear, so clear, and I hope you go from this place this morning with this, with this renewed clarity in your own mind that Jesus is not just some religious leader, that he is indeed God, God in the flesh, who has come to visit us. And therefore, the only proper response for us is to humble ourselves and bow before him in adoration and praise and to submit our entire lives to him and his divine authority. The New Testament says that we, will do, we can do that now willfully or there will come a day where we will do it begrudgingly and regretfully because it says that there will come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who do you say that Jesus is? I trust you can join with John this morning in his words from 1 John 4.15 where he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Let us confess afresh this morning together that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's do that now as we pray. Perhaps you'd like to stand this morning as we do that. Let's stand together. Let's stand before our King. I want you just to take just a moment in your own, in the quietness of your own mind and your own heart and allow that question to ring in your mind. Who is Jesus to you? And I trust this morning you can boldly and confidently and, 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 and loudly proclaim that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Let us do that together this morning in our hearts right now. Let's pray before him. Lord Jesus, we want to come before you this morning. Here in this place, gathered together as witnesses before you, Lord, we want, to, we want to boldly confess this morning afresh that Jesus is indeed, Lord, that he is the Son of God. 
He is God in the flesh, the one who has come to us to reveal God to us, the one who has not only come to reveal God to us, but the one who brings the presence of God to us. That Jesus, you are the one who not only brings the presence of God to us and reminds us of the great love of God for us and the desire of God to be with us, but you are the one and the only one who is able to reconcile us to God through your death and resurrection. And this morning, as the unique Son of God, we want to say thank you afresh for the fact that your divine power then is available to us in our lives through your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord Jesus, this morning that you might remind us afresh and fill us afresh with your Spirit today. Lord, help us to to know something of that power, your power at work in our lives as we confess you day by day to be indeed the Son of God to be our Saviour and our Redeemer, our Lord and our King. And Lord, this morning we bow before you in worship as we declare you to be the Son of God today. We worship you. We praise you. We lift your name up. We honour you. We pray that you'd help us to do that each in every aspect of our lives as we go from this place today. Help us not to just declare with the words of our tongues this morning that you are the Son of God, but indeed live it out in our lives that you are the one who are the Son of God to us and that we in each and every aspect of our lives as we go through this week, we will, con- we will submit ourselves to you. And we will rejoice in knowing that through faith in you, we are indeed sons of God with you, children of God. And we praise you for that in your mighty and glorious name. Amen. Please remain standing.